Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. And I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. The college football season is now officially over. We had an exciting national championship game and the the Bulldogs got over the hump and there were some great storylines. I think it was, for the most part, a success. I, I took a look at some of the ratings information because I think there's been a lot of concern and hand-wringing about what the uh, CFP's market share is going to be with all the limitations of COVID and then all this talk about expansion and so many factors influence viewership and demand for the product. It's, it's really hard to tease all that out. I'll leave to the economic pundits, the sports economics pundits, what all that means. And no doubt ESPN and the CFP and all their advertisers are crunching those numbers and trying to figure out what it all means going forward, particularly with the possibility still, I think, even though the talks have sort of stalled right now, I think there's going to be a renewal of discussions about expanding the CFP. But I want to just uh, shift attention now to what's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks. The NCAA's propaganda website is on overdrive right now, and they're just pumping out the propaganda heading into this convention. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about what's happening in the next week or so and what it means and then what we're going to need to be talking about on the backside of this convention. I did a number of episodes on this Constitution Committee and its progress, and then the formation of this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, which is so important. And you can check those out. Let's see, the, the first episode that I did in earnest on this shift to the Constitution Committee was episode 71 on November 5th of 2021. That was about a week after this Transformation Committee was formed. And then I went through to, let's see, episode 79 on December 9th, and then I picked up with some of these infractions and enforcement decisions. But the, the focus now is squarely on this convention that's coming up here next week, and then a vote on January 20th to ratify this constitution. I think the way that the NCAA is talking about this now to set the stage for that vote is really interesting. I pulled up a, uh, a document that was written and posted on the NCAA website. It was, uh, let's see, it was attributed to NCAA Communications and no individual author, but it's dated January 10th. It's titled D1 Convention Preview colon Constitution. And it talks about the Constitution through the lens of Division One interests. There's discussion about all these forums that are going to be held. Some of them are timed to occur before the vote on January 20th. And one of the things that's interesting is we have three drafts now. And this last draft that was presented on December 14th was presented as really the final draft. But some of the language in this uh, January 10th statement from the NCAA suggests that there still might be some discussion going on here. And so we're going to pay real close attention 
to what the final constitution looks like that's presented for ratification, that, and then assuming that the, the constitution is ratified, I think it will be, then we're going to go back and do a real close comparison between what actually is adopted versus what has been proposed. So there were three drafts of the constitution. The first one was on November 8th of uh, 2021. The second was on December 7th of 2021. Then the last one was on December 14th of 2021. I talked at length about the November 8th and December 7th drafts. I analyzed the December 14th draft, but didn't do an episode on it. There were a couple of changes there that I think were important, but I'm going to keep my powder dry on that and just wait to see what happens uh, with this ratification process and what the final constitution looks like. And then I'm going to go back and see if there are any material changes. But there were a few curveballs there, and almost all of the changes that were made through those drafts, including the December 14th draft, all watered down or eliminated any language that would impose any direct responsibilities, enforceable responsibilities on the NCAA or the divisions or the conferences or the member institutions. And some of those went directly to the very issue that the NCAA was propagandizing, and that was athlete well-being and health and safety and mental and physical well-being. And there were the stuff that got pulled out related almost exclusively to that very issue and as I've discussed in prior episodes, one of the purposes here, I think, from the institutional stakeholders and the movers and shakers behind the scenes in getting this new constitution put together was to make sure that there wasn't anything in that document that could give athletes some right of action to enforce any of these lofty principles that they've been propagandizing. That zero responsibility approach to the relationship between the institutional interests and the athletes has played out for decades. As athletes have filed suits in various contexts, from gender equity to race discrimination to breaches of fiduciary duty, to get the NCAA to stand by these very principles that they don't make enforceable through active legislation, that same philosophy is carried through in this new constitution and was reflected quite clearly in some of the deletions and amendments that occurred over the drafting process. So we're going to keep a sharp eye on that. But this press release talks about that the Division I Transformation Committee will begin its work following the business session to discuss the, these issues with the Division I Board of Directors. And as I discussed in my prior episodes, this Transformation Committee is composed of Power Five interests. It's a majority Power Five show. It's different in that sense from the Division I Board of Directors. And one of my first questions when they formed this Transformation Committee is, why do you need this? You have a Division I Board of Directors with 24 members. You form this transformation committee with 21 members. It's almost the same size. Why do you need a transformation committee? Just run this through the Division I Board of Directors. But when you look at the composition based on Power Five, Group of Five, football championship series, and then lower-level basketball-oriented interests on the D Division I Board of Directors, you see that the Power Five football interests don't dominate that board. So, And all these discussions that are going to take place in this in these new divisional authorities are really going to be within the division and then within the interests that swirl around the money products. And that's where you're back, to, I think, to some Power Five, Group of Five tension. And that has been resolved through this transformation committee in favor of Power Five control. There's also a couple of other interesting things here that I think uh, are worth paying attention to. And they throw in some BS stuff, normal business that has very little consequence. 
Then they, towards the end of this press release, they say, the board will hear updates from several groups, including the Sports Science Institute, the Finance Committee, and the Infractions Process Committee. I just want to stop right there. And I have talked so much about infractions and enforcement because that is where the rubber meets the road at the regulatory level. You can have all kinds of rules, but if you don't enforce them, they have no value. And if they're enforced selectively, that can create some issues. And that's been the case really from the earliest iterations of the modern NCAA under Walter Myers in the 1950s through its infractions and enforcement process. So now that that model, that infractions and enforcement authority has been sent from the NCAA national office down to the divisions, and the divisions have to come up with their own infractions and enforcement process and their own philosophy, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out at the Division One level. And Greg Sankey, who is the uh, anointed one now in big-time college sports, he's co-chair of this transformation committee. He's been openly critical of the infractions and enforcement process. And in this press release, they refer to the infractions process committee as just that, and implying that it's an association-wide committee, but it is not. It is actually the Division I Board of Directors Infractions Process Committee. When I first read this press release and I saw a reference to that committee, that kind of was a head-scratcher because I had never heard of that before. And the NCAA has so many committees. It's one of the things that it does to justify its existence. And I'm not a huge fan of committees. And the NCAA is just covered up with them. And I also note in that regard that this convention is in person. It's not virtual. So the NCAA is right back on the gravy train and spending all this money on nice travel and, and accommodations. And all these people are going to be coming in on the dime of revenue generated by elite Division I men's basketball players. This is an NCAA expense, and these are paid exclusively for March Madness money. So the party is back for the conventioneers in the NCAA and all these ridiculous committees. But the fact of the matter is that this was a Division I Board of Directors committee. And I went back and, and tried to figure out where it came from, and they have a link to it. And it appears as if it was formed in 2020, and it is a very small group of Division I power players. You have chancellors and presidents, you have a student-athlete, but you also have a conference commissioner. And the conference commissioners aren't that prominent in the regulatory model, the existing regulatory model. That's going to change with this new Board of Governors. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. But there is a conference commissioner on this infractions process committee. Guess who it is? None other than Greg Sankey. So when you, you read that the infractions process committee is involved here, that is a little red flag. So the press release goes on to say, board members, this means the Division I board, Board members will consider a recommendation on potential suspension of the independent accountability resolution process brought jointly by the Infractions Process Committee and the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee. The suspension would be reevaluated after the work of the Transformation Committee is complete. And that is a mouthful right there. So these two committees, you have this Infractions Process Committee, which I believe is the product of Greg Sankey's disdain for the current infractions and enforcement process, particularly the independent accountability resolution process. And uh, Sankey has been very critical of that independent review committee and process. And he's made public statements to that effect. But when you hear those two bodies making this joint 
recommendation to suspend the independent accountability resolution process, it reads, and I think it's intended to suggest, that these are independent bodies and they are association-wide bodies. That is not the case at all. In fact, and I talked about this at length when I talked about the, you know, the NC State infractions and enforcement process because it went through this independent accountability resolution process. That process, even though it has some features of independence because you don't have NCAA insiders actually conducting the hearings, the oversight for that entire process is run by NCAA insiders. So this Independent Accountability Oversight Committee, which suggests some independence, is actually an NCAA committee, and it is run exclusively by NCAA insiders. You have independent members of the board of directors, and then you have some Division I players there as well. So neither of these committees are truly independent, and neither are association-wide committees. These are Division I committees, and some may be led to believe that the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee is association-wide and that the Independent Accountability Resolution process is association-wide. That is not true. It applies only to Division I, and the reason is it is only in Division I that you have truly, quote-unquote, high-stakes cases, and that uh, independent process was put into place or recommended by the Commission on College Basketball specifically to handle these high-stakes cases, and those only exist in big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And of course, the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations flowed through a basketball scandal. So it was in the context of basketball, but that process could also apply to football. But what's interesting about this to me is that I believe this all runs through Greg Sankey. And these are Greg Sankey's views. And I believe this infractions process committee was put together in large part through his persuasion. And one of the interesting things about Sankey, and I'm going to talk a lot more about this when I get into analyzing the autonomy movement and the role of infractions and enforcement in that initiative. But, you know, Sankey has experience on the NCAA Committee on Infractions, and he served in that role for a number of years and actually was chair of that committee for three years. And he oversaw the UNC case that wound up in 2017. He got a lot of criticism for that because there were perceived conflicts of interest. And one of the attorneys for one of the key actors in that UNC case said that Sankey was operating under a conflict of interest. He refused to recuse himself, and he went forward with that case. And uh, then Sankey was the lightning rod for more criticism when the committee didn't really do anything with that case because there wasn't active legislation that allowed them to address the conduct at issue. And you're back to that same problem with the entire enforcement and infractions process that's existed for decades. And that is in all these fluffy constitutional pr principles that go to academic integrity and student-athlete well-being and all these highfalutin principles and gender equity and all this stuff. The NCAA doesn't have actual legislation that it can rely on to hang its hat on as the basis for an enforcement action. And that was true with UNC. And then, of course, it was true with Baylor with the violence against women issues. And it just resurfaces again and again and again. But on the backside of all of that experience, I think Sankey came away with a pretty cynical view of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. And he's been a vocal critic of this independent accountability resolution process. And again, I've talked a lot about that, but I really want to focus going forward on what this new infractions and enforcement process is going to look like. And I think we can be informed by Sankey's experience, but most importantly, what 
he was thinking when this autonomy legislation was coming into shape in 2013 and 2014, because he was on the NCAA Committee on Infractions at that time. He was the associate director of the SEC at the time. And it's going to be real interesting as this transformation committee begins its work in earnest, and that will happen, I think, uh, right after the ratification of the Constitution on January 20th. But it's going to be real interesting to see what they do with infractions and enforcement and the extent to which Sankey's prior experience and the opinions he's expressed will shape what this new divisional infractions and enforcement process looks like and what role, if any, the old NCAA National Office infractions and enforcement staff will have going forward. And I just think that this proposed suspension of the independent accountability resolution process where all of these key basketball-related cases now sit is, is just interesting. You know, in my prior episodes, I discussed both with the Auburn decision, that was a committee on infractions, the old system, and then the NC State case in the new accountability resolution process, why those decisions came out in the first place, because they came out after these draft constitutions were in place. And it was very clear to people who were paying attention, I think, that there was going to be a substantial shift in infractions and enforcement authority from the NCAA national office down to the divisions, which of course at the division one level means the power five. And it's important to remember that in these drafts of the constitution, there was a pretty clear philosophy that was expressed with respect to infractions and enforcement that the NCAA or whoever's making these decisions really has to be mindful of some equity-based principles, something that has been completely absent in the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process since the 1950s, and in particular being attentive to not issuing penalties that punish athletes who had absolutely nothing to do with the conduct at issue. And then another thing that they brought into the thinking was this sense of efficiency, and that's always been a a priority of Sankey's, but also proportionality, and that ties into not punishing people who had nothing to do with the conduct. But it also has to do with coming in with a machine gun to kill a fly. And that has been an NCAA approach, and I think in large part, that has been a public relations tactic to try to let the world know that they're on top of protecting the amateur ideal and all that stuff. And most recently in that Oklahoma State men's basketball case that I I talked a bit about, there was a postseason ban imposed this year. So these current athletes can't play in the March Madness tournament this year. And the conduct at issue in that case occurred when many of the current players were in middle school or high school. It was ridiculous overkill with that penalty. And This new constitution, I think, reflects a philosophy that is designed to prevent that from happening. So my thinking was, if that's the case, and you know that you're going to have a constitution that is going to take the NCAA out of the driver's seat on infractions and enforcement and put it in the hands of the Power Five with these new philosophies and more athlete-friendly philosophies in place, why in the world would you go forward with any infractions and enforcement cases and imposing penalties when the entire philosophy of that structure could change and and will change. And so my recommendation was that they just put a a freeze, a temporary freeze on all infractions and enforcement work, whether it's through the old system, the NCAA system, or through through the new independent accountability resolution process. And apparently that's on the table now. So I don't know if these people are listening to my podcast or whether that's something they've been thinking all along, but it's a sensible 
decision and a sensible thing to have on the table. But again, looking at these two committees coming together to make this joint recommendation, I see Greg Sankey's influence all over this. So the other thing I want to talk a little bit about, because this got virtually no attention in, in this press release and in all of the stuff that's coming out now, and they're just, the NCAA's website is just pumping this stuff out as fast as they can. And there's all kinds of feel-good stuff and they're going to be giving awards and having important speeches and all that. And that's a nice thing to do. And we should celebrate those people and their achievements. But this is one of the things that is left for the NCAA to do through this new constitution committee. And that's really one of the few things it's, it's going to be doing going forward in addition to bringing in March Madness money and then spreading it around to divisions two and three. That's its main role here now. And the same is true for the NCAA president. Their role is in many ways largely ceremonial. So this convention has the feel of the, a grand ceremony. And Mark Emmert is the head of the Chamber of Commerce. He, he's the mayor. He's the mayor of NCAA town. And he's the ribbon cutter. And he's the, the guy that uh, shows up at all the big events for the institutional and the organizational interest. And that aspect of the uh, NCAA's role appears to be accentuated here in the way that this website's pumping it out. It also speaks to another important thing uh, on the backside of this constitutional makeover, and that is that you have Greg Sankey's influence in this sort of workmanlike approach to regulation and to the business model, but we still have the propaganda arm in full gear, and that's not going to change. And, and that's going to be a really interesting tightrope for Sankey to walk as he's leading this transformation committee because he's benefiting from all that propaganda, yet he's supposed to be the no BS guy, the no frills guy, the behind the scenes guy. And you can't have it both ways. If you really want to have an organization that has some integrity, you turn the volume way down to match what exactly it is you're doing. Not to keep convincing the American public that all these fluffy principles, the amateurism, the collegiate model, the student athlete, and all this happy malarkey are still viable concepts in the 21st century. So that, that's another interesting thing that we're going to be following, and I think a real challenge for Greg Sankey and the Power Five interests. But the way that the NCAA website's talking about this convention and all the activity leading up to it and what it's going to accomplish, all that revolves around getting this constitution ratified, and then letting the divisions do their work. That dominant theme, I think, is really prominent in the messaging on this convention. But in that, there's a really important thing that gets lost. And that is that there are some association-wide issues that need to be addressed through this new constitution. Number one on the list is putting in place the new board of governors. Because remember, one of the most important things to come out of this constitutional makeover is the substantial reduction in the size of the Board of Governors. The Board of Governors is the association-wide body, and it is responsible for hiring and firing the NCAA president, for deciding what to do on litigation, for looking at, at budget matters, and for making sure that the principles of the association are adhered to at a broad brush level. And it's, it's an important board. And on paper, it is the most powerful governing body in all of college sports. And that board is being neutered, not just in the number of members, but also in 
who will be occupying those seats. And I talked about this in my prior episodes, and it's a theme I'm going to keep repeating because it's so important. This new Board of Governors is, in my judgment, the symbolic end of the era of presidential leadership and control for intercollegiate athletics. And that was a product of the Knight Commission's work in the early 1990s and its seminal report in 1991, Keeping Faith with the Student-Athlete, in which the concept of presidential leadership and control was the centerpiece of all of the recommendations. And the belief was that college sports, particularly revenue-producing sports, football, men's basketball, were out of control and out of alignment with the values of higher education, and that presidents and chancellors were the only people who could bring those business enterprises back in alignment with their institutional values and their academic values and the broader values of higher education. That was a miserable failure. While there is a parade wave, a token parade wave in this new constitution to the concept of institutional control and the primacy of presidential control and responsibility, that has not been translated into the power structure. In fact, it's been eliminated in the power structure. So under the old board of governors, or actually the existing board of governors, there are 21 members. Five of those members are independent, meaning that they don't have a direct affiliation with NCAA member institutions. And those independent directors were the product of the Commission on College Basketball recommendations and the obvious conflicts of interest that exist in the current regulatory model. So you had these five independent members. Then you had 16 voting members. And all 16 of those voting members are university presidents or chancellors, all 16, under the new constitution that will have only nine members on the board of governors. Only one has to be a university president or chancellor. I guess theoretically there could be more, but the way that the constitution is currently drafted, the language in that document requires only one university president or chancellor. And it requires a conference commissioner. Under the old Board of Governors, there wasn't a single conference commissioner. You had some athletics directors that had an ex officio position. There were some ex officio positions, non-voting positions, but all the voting members were either independent or university presidents or chancellors. That is not a small tweak. That is a massive, massive change, and it reflects a clear movement away from presidential control for intercollegiate athletics. And this goes back really to the autonomy legislation in 2013, 2014, and the powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who were pushing that. And remember, Greg Sankey was a principal author of that autonomy legislation and designed the strategy to promote it. But one of the things that came through in that campaign through documents presented to the Division I Board of Directors in favor of autonomy legislation was that athletics directors and conference commissioners and people who really understand the business of big-time college sports should have a more prominent role in decision-making, and that autonomy legislation would be one way to do that without turning upside down the existing governance structure, because under autonomy legislation, the Power Five, and only the Power Five, we're going to have the flexibility and prerogative to do things and legislate in areas that no other class of member institutions could do. And it didn't go in any way to what was happening on the Board of Governors or the Division I Board of Directors. It was just for the Power Five in these ostensibly limited areas. But in that sphere of power, of authority, they didn't want the university presidents telling them what to do. They wanted it to be the, the commissioners, the athletics directors, and all the people on the, on the ground, so to speak 
in the business of big-time college sports. And that philosophy has been brought forward into this new constitution. But there has been virtually no discussion about who those people might be. And just to spell out who can sit on this new board of governors, let me pull out my draft and I'm going to get the Yeah, this is the, the December 14th, twenty. 21 draft and under board of governors it says the composition of the board of governors shall include with due attention to diversity and gender equity of course the following voting members uh, one four members from division one to include at least one member institution president or chancellor and one conference commissioner so one university president one conference commissioner two other spots from division one who knows who those people are going to be then one member from the division two president's council which is basically the division two governing body the main governing body and then third uh, a member from the division three president's council same shtick two independent members who are not currently employed or compensated by any member institution and i think for those two members you're looking probably the same type of person that's in the independent Board of Governors class right now, those five members, like Bob Gates, for example. And then fifth, one graduated NCAA student athlete who shall have graduated not more than four years prior to appointment. And that is a voting seat. And then you have some ex officio positions. That's nine people. And it is clearly weighted towards Division One, which gives Division One a nice head start in any discussions that could be contentious, but those discussions are few and far between. Almost all the, the votes of these boards are unanimous. And the reason for that, I believe, one, I think it, it sends a nice message if you can agree and everybody can agree. And that's the way that institutional stakeholders in higher education think about things. We want consensus. We try to talk until we can reach, reach consensus. We didn't really take a vote. We don't really need to count votes. We just sort of come to a, this vaporous consensus and then everybody's happy and they can go on about their expressions of collegiality for each other. But the other and more important reason why there's hardly ever a non-unanimous vote, in fact, I have my review of these board meetings, I haven't seen a non-unanimous vote. Maybe they're out there. But the, the other reason for that is that almost everybody who gets a seat at these tables sees the world in almost exactly the same way. So the possibility that there could be material differences of opinion on any issue that comes to them is very, very small. And that's part of the problem. It's always been part of the problem with having the same people who created this mess still having the seats of power and making decisions going forward. But you know, one of the things that it's really important to pay attention to is how is that transformation going to take place? How is that transition going to occur? And when is it going to occur? And that, that's an important transition. And who sits on this new nine-member board of governors is going to be very interesting. So I think I'm going to wait until the actual constitution is ratified before I start talking in more detail about what it means. But between now and January 20th, I may do a couple of episodes just bringing this up to speed on the history of the relationship between the powerful football interests and the other moving parts in the business model with an emphasis on the transition from the Bowl Alliance into the BCS into the Power Five and then the autonomy legislation and how that single process, the autonomy process in 2013-2014 is virtually identical to what is happening right now 
with this Constitution Committee and for many of the same reasons. And when you go back and you look at the documents that the big-time powerful football interests were presenting to the governing boards to support their case for autonomy, and these were deep off the record, they were disclosed through discovery in O'Bannon. I think it was O'Bannon. They may have been introduced in the Austin case as well. But that's the blueprint for what's happening right now. When you lay those arguments side by side with the arguments that have been advanced, both within the Constitution Committee structure and then outside of it through public comments, you really begin to see that there's virtually no difference at the philosophical level between those two initiatives and that this Constitution Committee is really just a logical endpoint of what the Power Five were trying to achieve in 2013, 2014. And it's a really interesting compare and contrast. And when I talk about the world that existed in big-time college football, back from the transition from the Bowl Alliance into the BCS and then into the formation of the Power Five, this juggernaut of unprecedented football power, the aggregation of that power. It's really important to view it through the lens of the value system of the stakeholders in big-time college football. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that. When you go back and you look at the public statements, particularly the congressional testimony, because the big-time powerful football interests, although not operating as the Power Five because that happened through conference realignment, but you have the same basically 60, 65 schools banding together to control the post-season football marketplace. And of course, they have control of the rest of the marketplace because a board of regents and the big paydays at the end of the season are, are such a, an important feature of big-time college football. These powerful football interests have had control of that since 1984. And the extent to which they have protected their financial interests and protected those coveted postseason payoff bonanzas is really consistent over the years. When I get to talking about the amateurism issues and then the antitrust issues on the backside of this constitution and how those issues are going to influence what happens with this transformation committee and then what happens when the Power Five decides to re-engage with Congress and also to have more influence in handling athlete-initiated antitrust suits like this House suit in California. I'm also going to talk about the other antitrust issue that doesn't get a lot of discussion. And all these issues float around together. They're interconnected and you have to view them as a package and how they relate to one another. It's important to understand the history of the moving parts there and, and the value system. And that's why I think we're going to probably go back to the late 1990s to really emphasize the, the value system of the big time powerful football interests. But we're going to be looking really at the antitrust issues in two completely different categories. On the one hand, you have these antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits like the White case in 2006 and then O'Bannon and then Austin. And you have amateurism right on the table there. Those cases are central to understanding the relationship between the institutional interest and the laborers. And I'm going to talk about that in conjunction with my discussion of what amateurism looks like in 2022. But then you have this entirely separate 
antitrust issue floating out there that the Power Five are going to have to contend with, and that is how they position themselves in this new market, in this new regulatory market, and then in, in, in out into the actual business market. How are they going to position themselves relative to other potential competitors in the marketplace? And those issues have been lurking in the background, going back to really the Board of Regents and moving forward. Because people forget that right after Board of Regents, when the College Football Association, which was really the plaintiff in that case, even though it ran through the University of Georgia Athletics Association and then the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents, it was a CFA, Southern Football conglomerate, a coalition of schools. But on the backside of that, when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the NCAA's monopoly on televised football, the CFA started doing its own contracts. That was really the whole purpose of the lawsuit. As those contracts went into place, you had some actors in big-time college football who weren't included in those contracts saying that the CFA was engaging in anti-competitive behavior and that they were acting in, in the same way, essentially, as the NCAA did when it had a monopoly. So you've had these concerns around for a long, long time, and they've just kind of recycled. And that happened in the 1990s in this transition to the BCS. And you had the NCAA being hauled before Congress in, I think it was 1997. And then six years later, as the BCS was starting to mature a little bit, you had the same concerns being raised by the have-nots and this have-have-not dichotomy, which I talked about in the last episode. When you go back and look at the history of the relationship between the haves and the have-nots, the haves have done everything in their power to suppress the market potential of the have-nots, and they've run roughshod over those interests. In those hearings, you really hear from the what are now the Power Five interests, exactly how they see the world and their place in the big-time college sports marketplace. And it is based on a philosophy of cutthroat, winner-take-all in the marketplace. And the hearings in 2003, which really were the product of the have-nots making a bunch of noise and saying that the haves were engaging in anti-competitive behavior, the, these hearings were built around that antitrust uh, issue and the antitrust implications of the way that what are now the Power Five had structured the, the BCS to exclude any other potential competitors in that big-time football marketplace. And the hearings were held in uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think there was a House hearing as well, and I believe that was in Judiciary too. But the reason that those hearings were in Judiciary is because Judiciary has frontline jurisdiction over antitrust issues. And that was the theme of the uh, hearings. In fact, this hearing in the Senate, I think, was titled Competition in College bowl uh, games or in the college bowl system. I, I'm going to talk a lot about those hearings and pull some quotes so that you can really get a sense of how this tension between the haves and the have-nots has been percolating for a long time. It hasn't gone away and it's being renewed in these discussions about the CFP expansion and what that contract's going to look like, who's going to have not just a seat at the table, but who's going to get the money. And that's what it comes down to. Who's going to get the money? And when the CFP was formed in 2012, you have to remember that that was really on the back end of conference realignment and all of these discussions about the growing distance between the haves and the have-nots. And you have to remember that historically, although Congress has held these hearings occasionally, 
to try to put pressure on the big-time powerful football interests to play by free and fair competition rules, they haven't done anything. And I think when you look historically at the relationships between the Power Five interests and then any other competing football interest, you can make a decent case, I think, that in 2012, when the CFP was formed, you know, they didn't have the first game until 2015, but they had this phase-in period and trying to get everything up and running at the operational level. But in 2012, when they formed the CFP, I think one of the reasons that the Power Five brought the group of five into that organization was to mitigate any potential antitrust concerns. I think that was really just deferring a more direct confrontation on those issues because when you look at the revenue sharing under the uh, current CFP model and then you look at the structure of the playoff itself, you see that the vast majority of the revenue generated by the CFP goes to the Power Five conferences, and that in the final four selections of the playoff competitors, the Power Five dominates and has dominated every year since 2015. So you have these rumblings that I think have grown louder and louder behind the scenes from the have-nots. And and in that model, even in that model where the Power Five and the Group of Five are on paper coexisting, there is obvious separation between those two interests and the Power Five is on top. They are the haves and they always have been and they always will be. Unless there's a, a lawsuit or unless Congress intervenes. So I think that antitrust issue is really more pressing right now to the powerful football interests who are now in control of NCAA governance under this new constitution. And they are focusing on that. They have to get that right. And it's one of the reasons I think that there hasn't been a lot of discussion about, you know, the aftermath from Austin or what's happening in this house suit out in California or what this new constitution does to try to protect the NCAA's tradi- traditional view of, of amateurism. And those are all important. But I think right now, the power players at the Power Five level are really more concerned about getting things straightened away with the CFP, because it's not just a question of whether consumers want to have eight teams or versus four teams or 12 teams versus four teams. There are substantial antitrust issues that are, are floating around out there. And I have no doubt that in all these discussions, which the participants have been very coy about, they've been very tight-lipped, not a whole lot of transparency there. But you can bet your bottom dollar that the antitrust lawyers are outside the conference rooms whispering into the ears of the participants. And, you know, that if the Power Five is going to be re-engaging with Congress on the athlete rights issues and the amateurism-based compensation limit issues and the antitrust implications of that, I don't think they want to be in a position where they're actually fighting another antitrust battle that they could solve, you know, that they could take care of themselves if they give a little on whatever it is that the have-nots want. And so that, that there's some interesting, I think, maneuvering going on right now. But one of the key themes that came out of these hearings in, in the late 90s and then the early 2000s was that there was this congressional threat to take action, but they didn't really want to do it. Orrin Hatch, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2003, he's a Republican from Utah. Hatch really pushed those hearings because he wanted the have-nots to have their day in Congress. But he, he was very clear. He said, yeah, there are antitrust issues here, and they're 
this could be an antitrust cluster mock if it results in litigation. But he said, we want you to do this voluntarily. We want you to sit down at the table and create a level playing field and allow the have-nots to have a seat at the table and then a reasonable opportunity to compete in these big ball games. And then there were only four ball games. There was a talk about adding another ball game as a way to throw a bone to the have-nots. And of course, at that time, everybody was saying, a college playoff? No, that'll be the death of college football as we know it. And among the vested in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, these big-time powerful football schools, their presidents and chancellors and the conference commissioners, what are now the Power Five conference commissioners, they were pretty happy with the status quo. And their resistance to change is really interesting now and kind of comical because you see that resistance for what it is. And it is just people who are fat and happy with the status quo, and they will do or say whatever it takes to preserve the status quo. And that was the case in 2019-2020 when the NCAA and Power Five were going on offense in Congress to get these extraordinary protections and immunities that would have preserved the then existing status quo. That kind of fell apart on them. So now they're having to restructure their strategy and figure out a new angle to go back to Congress to basically hold on to their power and to Now, instead of preserving the status quo, because the status quo has changed dramatically in 2021, it is to have the authority to dictate what happens going forward from that new status quo. And that's really what this Constitution Committee has been about in this new Constitution and the reallocation of power and the Power Five power grab at the regulatory level, the voluntary regulatory level. But these antitrust issues aren't going away and the campaign in Congress isn't going to go away. But it's really important to understand how all of these pieces relate to each other. And that has a pretty clear, I think, historical background. And you can draw a direct line from 1984 to 2022. And the thinking and the value system of the people who are in the have category. All right. So with that, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.